0: Good morning, welcome again. We're in 1 Samuel, the very end of chapter 11. If you're new to the Bible, the big numbers are chapters, the little numbers are verses. We're in 1 Samuel, chapter 11, we'll read through chapter 12. I don't remember what page it is in your Bibles, but it's towards the beginning. 1 Samuel 11, starting at verse 14. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let's go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. And Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and he said, and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king. And now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord, and serve him, and obey his voice, and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the command of the Lord, the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore stand still. And see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you've done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid, you have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself." Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things He's done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, apart from the power and the grace of your Spirit... These words remain mere ink, and my voice remains mere sound waves. Please, by the power of your spirit, use these words, bless them, bless my voice, so that we might hear you speaking, and so that we might apply it to our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, In his farewell speech, George Washington famously warned the United States about getting involved. In foreign alliances. Dwight Eisenhower famously warned about the malign influence of the military industrial complex. Uh, there was a pretty infamous farewell speech about 10 years ago. Uh, a flight attendant had had one too many arguments with passengers and decided he wasn't gonna take it anymore, uh, shared some choice words over the intercom, pounded the button to deploy the slide, grabbed a beer, and jumped down the slide and ran away to his car and drove home. But my favorite farewell speech is Bilbo Baggins saying goodbye to the Shire on his 111th birthday. 111 years is too short a time to live among such excellent and admirable hobbits. I don't know half as well half of you as well as I should like and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. <laughs> Our passage today is something of a farewell speech by Samuel. Though he's not going to entirely disappear from the story, he's going to remain an important character, but he's kind of going to go into the background. This is the final piece of a transition that started in chapter 8, a major transition in Israel's history. Israel is now going to have a human king ruling over them. At the end of chapter 11, a couple of weeks ago, we saw that through the power of God's spirit, this king-elect, Saul, had won a great victory. He had extended mercy by the power of God's spirit, even though in chapters 9 and 10, that story about the donkey search Even though in that story, we had already gotten some pretty strong indications that Saul's character leaves a lot to be desired. And so now, having just seen this great victory that Saul has won, his great mercy that he extends on God's behalf, now here in chapter 12, we're wondering if perhaps things are going to work out with him okay after all. Maybe he'll be all right. Look at the end of chapter 11. Verses 14 and 15 there give us a brief summary of, I think, what's happening in all of chapter 12. It kind of summarizes it, and then it unpacks it all for us. Samuel, there in verse 14, brings the people to a place called Gilgal. Uh, That's a very important place in the history of Israel, because it's where Israel first entered the promised land under Joshua, who was Moses' successor. And there in Gilgal, with this generation that had been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, Israel renewed their relationship with God. Joshua led them in this ceremony to remind them of who they were, where God had brought them from, and what God expected from them. Uh, They circumcised all the males there for the first time in 40 years, and they ate the first Passover meal in the Passover land. And so Samuel brings them back to that same exact place to renew the kingdom, um, it's not entirely clear whose kingdom it's talking about, but it's probably not talking about Saul's kingdom, his human kingdom, uh, but rather God's kingdom, uh, since that was something like what Joshua had done with them. And since we've been hearing about how Israel's broken their relationship with God, they have rebelled against him. And so Saul, I mean Samuel now takes them to renew that kingdom. Uh, their defiant rejection of God in demanding a human king has left them with a need to revisit the past and to consider the future of their relationship with God now that they're going to have a king. And so now in chapter 12, we start out by hearing about past faithfulness. Verses 1 to 12 describe for us past faithfulness. First, Samuel's past faithfulness. And then starting in verse 6, God's past faithfulness. Samuel is now an old man, and he acknowledges that he's given the people the king that they demanded. Remember, he didn't really like that idea. He went to God and said, I don't know about this. And God said, they shouldn't be doing this, but do it anyways. Give them the king they want. Samuel emphasizes his lifelong integrity. Remember, the story started um, really with Samuel's mother, Hannah, and then with uh, her, God giving her a son in her womb, and then Samuel is a little boy. Uh, and so now we've walked through his entire life. He's using, all through this chapter, the language of the courtroom. That's why he keeps talking about God being a witness. Um, He says to the Israelites first, he says, make an accusation against me. He's going to put himself up in the dock. Uh, He's going to be the defendant. He's going to say, testify against me. Did I ever oppress you? Did I ever cheat you? Did I ever take a bribe? Have I mysteriously become very wealthy while I've been in political office, even though I don't get paid that much every year? Perhaps that sounds a little familiar in our world. He repeatedly uses the word take. He's echoing chapter 8, where he kept telling the Israelites about how their kings were just going to take and take and take from them. And so he's saying to them, here I am, none of you can accuse me of treating you the way that the king you want so badly is about to treat you. I haven't been very kingly toward you. And that's a good thing, he's saying. The people agree. They say, we agree. You have not used us. You have not taken advantage of us. They confirm that he has walked with perfect integrity and faithfulness before the Lord and before them his entire life. And so then in verse 6, that's Samuel's past faithfulness. He's clear before God and before them. In verse 6, he shifts to God's past faithfulness. Samuel continues to use courtroom imagery, but he moves the characters around a little bit. He says in verse 7 that they should stand still so that I might plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds that he performed for you. And so now instead of Samuel being the defendant in the courtroom, now Israel is the defendant. This word for plead with you is another legal term. It means something like, I'm going to sue you. I'm going to bring legal charges against you. I'm going to enter into uh, legal proceedings with you. Samuel says that they need to be charged to remember all of God's mighty deeds Of salvation in the past. And he focuses especially on how God repeatedly rescued them from oppression at the hands of human kings. In verse 8, he reminds them of their foundational rescue, the exodus from Egypt. They were slaves there. God rescued them from Pharaoh. They cried out to God, and he sent Moses and Aaron to do all that for them, to bring them into a new home. But then in verse 9, they had forgotten about God. And so God sells them. He hands them over to the oppression of new political rulers. Uh, People like Sisera, uh, who in my favorite Old Testament story, uh, was killed by the noble woman Jael by driving a tent peg through his head while he was sleeping. Um, And then also people like the Philistines, people like the Moabites. But each time, uh, God also raised up a savior. God raised up a hero to deliver them out of the hand of your enemies on every side And you lived in safety. That's in verse 11. Samuel is describing the pattern that you see all through the book of Judges, which is the book in the Old Testament before Samuel. Israel forgets about God, and they abandon God. They worship idols and creatures instead of him. And so God eventually, after a long time, hands them over to oppressors. But then Israel cries out to God, and God responds by graciously raising up a hero, a savior, and then the whole thing starts over again. It just keeps happening over and over. The book of Judges is very depressing. The pattern continues into the life of Samuel, who in many ways is the final judge and the first prophet. Um, We've seen God use him to bring salvation from the Philistines. We saw that a couple chapters ago. But then the pattern gets broken. Uh, We don't get the same cycle over and over again. Look at verse 11. But when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No... But a king shall rule over us, when the Lord your God was your king. We heard last week that the Ammonites had been oppressing Israel, uh, which apparently was part of the reason that they came to Samuel demanding a king. They wanted somebody impressive because they figured that he could do something about this oppression. But notice what's different now about this cycle. Uh, The thing missing here is that the people don't cry out to God after being graciously rescued over and over by God, now they give up on him. They say, we're tired of the way he does things. Uh, We think we have a better idea. They looked for a human creaturely savior instead. And so something is really broken. Something's very disjointed in Israel's relationship with God. Having a human king is a major change for their life as a community. In verse 13, Samuel gets to his punchline. He says, now behold, The king whom you have chosen, for whom you've asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. The Lord concedes to their sinful and selfish demand. It might be easy to look at them and think, well, I wouldn't do that. Uh, I know how good God is. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty aware of all the nice things he's done for me in the past. I trust him. I don't care about political leaders. But we have to understand that Israel, the whole Old Testament story of Israel, they're really a microcosm of the universal human condition. They are a small glimpse of the universal human tendency to constantly and inescapably look away from the Creator and toward the creature, our infatuation with the gifts, but our disdain and indifference toward the giver. They're just a picture of what's wrong with all of us. Israel had every privilege and every advantage. They had God's word spoken more clearly to them than to anybody else. They had God's presence there with them more glorious than anywhere else. And they still did what all of us have done, and they still did what all of us are doing. They looked to themselves and their stuff and their leaders for significance and safety and sustenance. But God today has done far more for us in Jesus than he did for Old Testament Israel. Because today in the church, we have Jesus himself as the climax of God's word, the clearest, most powerful expression of who God is and what he says. We have Jesus raised from the dead, not as an abstraction or wishful thinking, but as something that really happened in history. We have been given a lot more grace. And so when Christians walk away, they are rejecting a lot more grace. And so there's a warning for us today, particularly if you call yourself a Christian. It's a warning about the danger of drifting away from the Lord, a warning about forgetting what He's done for us, a warning about growing indifferent toward Him and resentful toward His Word, a warning about making excuses and allowances for ourselves. Even if we, probably like everybody in Israel at this time, even if we would still say that we believe in God. Even if we would still say that, yeah, we care about these things and we like to do some of these things and we like to go through some of the motions and isn't that good enough? And so kids, and especially teenagers here today, uh, you should know that me and your elders are deeply burdened for you, deeply concerned for you. Uh, we are very concerned that you continue to embrace the mercy of God that was pictured in your baptisms. I've been baptizing a lot of babies at CTK lately, which is wonderful, and it's great. But it's also a time for all of us to remember the, the mighty deeds that the Lord's done for all of us, and to not walk away from them, to not forget about them. So that's Samuel's and God's past faithfulness. Now in verse 14, we shift to the future. Uh, Particularly, we focus on the future faithfulness of God and the future faithfulness of Samuel. Samuel charges Israel to follow the Lord wholeheartedly, even if they're now going to have a king and even if they're going to suffer greatly because of it. In verse 14, he says that if they fear and serve and obey the Lord, if they and the king follow him, he says things will go well for you. There are blessings for keeping God's covenant. And that's true today. But verse 15, and this is where his emphasis really lies, verse 15 he says, if you don't do these things, if you rebel against God, and he says, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. We've been hearing about the hands of the oppressors, of these pagan nations around them, and somewhat shockingly, horrifyingly, Samuel warns that the hand of the Lord can turn against you. He says, God will bring judgment upon you, just like God is presently bringing a measure of judgment on this world before he fully brings it at the second coming of Jesus. A lot of people are uncomfortable with the idea of God's judgment, God's wrath. But the Bible is quite clear that God's wrath is the right and good response to all the ways that sin distorts and ruins the world. But even more than that, even deeper than that, God's wrath towards sin is right and good because it is a hideous defiance of Him. And He is the one God of perfect goodness and beauty and truth. Samuel underscores the seriousness of the situation by calling for God to bring a miracle of judgment on them. It's something kind of like Jesus' cursing of the fig tree Uh, That was a miracle of judgment also to signify God's coming judgment on Jerusalem because they were rejecting him much more than what Israel is rejecting here in Samuel. In verse 17, Samuel says, isn't it the wheat harvest right now? Isn't today the day that you guys would normally be out there collecting all your food for the the fall and the winter and the spring? Uh, He says, here's our grain fields. It's normally bone dry out at this time of year. People are just ready to harvest all their fields and store everything up. He says, how about this? How about I call on the Lord? so that he can send thunder and rain. And he says, you'll know then that your wickedness is great in what you've done in the sight of the Lord in asking for a king. And so you see what's going on. It's not like, oh, good, we've needed some rain. It's been kind of dry lately. Uh, This will be really good for our wakeboarding trip next weekend at the lake. Uh, This is a horrifying act of judgment. Uh, God is bringing immediate destruction on their very livelihoods. It's uh, a very unseasonable thunderstorm that could ruin everything they've been working for all year long. You can see that's what's going on because the people very quickly understand how serious it is. They say, please pray to your God so that we may not die. In one afternoon, God can destroy not only their work, but also their very lives because of how they have so callously disregarded Him. How fragile we are. How fragile our lives are. How dependent we are on God mercifully withholding his judgment upon us and our families and our labors and our savings. How offensive is it for us to assume that God just owes it to us to keep us safe and prosperous? Even as Christians, all of whom, as we confess every week, all of whom continue to sin every single day. Life itself is a mercy, Nothing can be taken for granted. We don't deserve anything good in our lives. COVID has been a major wake up call, I think, from God toward a world that's largely happy to disregard Him. This year and a half has been a warning to the world. How many people have really heeded it? How many people have turned with repentance and faith toward God, wondering what it means to know Him and to take Him seriously? How many Christians, myself included, for all of our talk about God have actually just been a lot more fixated on the news and election cycles than on Him? It seems to me that it's mostly just revealed where my and our priorities and idols have been all along. COVID has revealed how similar we really are to Israel. We look to human politicians and experts for salvation and security rather than to God, even if we keep talking about God. Samuel tells the people who are now rightly terrified by what's going on, he says, don't be afraid. It's kind of an odd thing to say. He says, don't be afraid. You have done this evil, but don't turn aside after empty things that can't profit or deliver, for they're empty. Israel doesn't need to give up hope. He says, don't be afraid. Don't give up hope yet. Because, he says, there is still an opportunity for you, just like for us in our world today. There is still an opportunity to turn toward the Lord and away from empty saviors. Uh, This word for empty shows up in the second verse of the Bible. Uh, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then we hear that the earth was formless and void. This word for empty is one of those words. It means um, empty, void, the prophet Isaiah uses the same word to describe idols. Uh, why would you worship these idols? They are empty. They don't do anything for you. They don't help you in the end. But Isaiah also uses the same word to describe human rulers and to describe human nations who appear so invincible, who appear so effective, but are really, Isaiah says, nothing more than dust on the scales. He says in Isaiah 40, verse 17, he says, they are less than nothing. They are emptiness. The same word. Nothing can ultimately benefit you or save you except for God himself. Not your family, not your job, not your health, not your education. And so Samuel says to them, and by the Spirit he's saying to us today, look to the Lord. Don't be afraid, don't quite give up hope yet. You do deserve this judgment. But he says, live under God as your king because there's nothing else that's fit to rule over you. Nothing else that you should give over your heart to, to become your ruler. And so that's Israel's future. It's fairly uncertain. If you do this, things will go well. If you do this, and it looks like things are heading that direction, things are going to be really bad. They have an uncertain future. But then Samuel turns to God's future. And God's future is certain. Look at verse 22. Look at what God's going to do. Look at at what God's going to continue to do. He says, The Lord will not forsake his people. For his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. You hear how amazing that is? After all this emphasis on God's holy judgment against sin and against rebellion, this is a wonderful verse. It shows us that God remains and will remain steadfastly committed to his people. He will not give up on them ever even though they clearly don't deserve his protection or his care. They don't even want it. Now, why is that? Why is God going to remain faithful to his people? Samuel says that the reason God won't give up on his people is because he has profoundly committed to his own reputation. He's profoundly committed to his own glory. The reason that God loves his people so much is because he loves himself so much. Now, that sounds odd. It's not good when we fall in love with ourselves, but it is good when God loves himself because there is nothing in all of reality more lovely or beautiful or valuable than God. And so it's right and it's good for him to love himself. This is what we mean when we say that God is blessed, when we say that God is self-satisfied, that he is infinitely happy, infinitely content in himself. He wasn't missing anything or lacking anything before he created the universe. He created out of an overflow of his love and his goodness, not because he was lacking in something. He was perfectly content, and he is perfectly content. And so because his people are his people, he can't not love them. Because if he were to reject them or give up on them, he would be rejecting himself. He has tied them to himself. He has tied us to himself forever and ever. And so ultimately, the foundation of the good news of Jesus is not anything about us. The foundation of the gospel is God's own unchanging character. And that's very good news, because we are a very fickle people. God will remain faithful to his people, even though they will continue to struggle in sin and apathy. And Samuel himself is going to embody for them this future faithfulness. He says to them in verse 23, he says, I'll never stop praying for you. I will never stop teaching you, even though Israel's made it quite clear that they're kind of done with him. They don't really want to do things Samuel's way anymore. And it's a beautiful picture, isn't it, of faithful ministry today, not only formal ministry like the kind I have or that the elders have, but also the kind of informal ministry that all Christians have toward one another. God forbid that I and we ever stop praying for and teaching one another. Samuel ends in verse 24 with another call for Israel to serve the Lord faithfully with all their heart, or as Deuteronomy 6 puts it, to love the Lord with all of our hearts. Why should they do that? Samuel reminds them again, consider what great things he's done for you. But then he gives another warning. He says, if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. As you keep reading in the Old Testament, you will see very clearly that nothing really changes for Israel. They will continue to fail to love the Lord with all of their heart, and they actually get much worse. A lot of people think the Old Testament is about God being angry. Uh, The Old Testament is really about God being patient. It's about God being kind and compassionate toward a people that don't care about him. A reading earlier from 2 Corinthians 3 described how Israel, even in the Apostle Paul's day, was still marked largely by a hard-heartedness that led to their condemnation before the glory of God's perfect law. But like we said, Israel is just a small picture of what's wrong with all of us. All of us have failed, all of us are failing to love the Lord with all of our hearts. We too deserve to be swept away under the storm of God's judgment. Part of the passage here, part of what it means, it's about striving to obey and to serve the Lord more faithfully. It's about recommitting to loving Him with our whole hearts. We can't claim to know Jesus if we refuse to obey Him. Uh, This is going to be the main theme of chapter 13 next week with Saul coming up with his own ways to obey God. That's part of what this passage is about, but on a deeper level, this passage is not really about our commitment to God. It's really about Jesus' commitment to God. Jesus came a thousand years after Samuel as the greater and the better and the truer Israel. Uh, He, too, was baptized, so to speak, like Israel was baptized in the Red Sea. Uh, He spent 40 days in the wilderness. They spent 40 years in the wilderness. Um, Jesus came as the new Israel, the better Israel. He succeeded in all the ways that Israel failed. He really did love and fear and serve God with all of his heart. He's actually the only person that's ever really done that. And yet he was swept away by what was the ultimate unseasonable storm. The unrestrained storm of God's judgment on the cross. Not for his sins, not for his rebellion, but for ours. God coming to us in Jesus to perfectly keep God's law, and yet bearing its curses anyways, that's the most glorious picture of God's steadfast love and faithfulness toward a wayward people. God's utter refusal to abandon a people who just aren't that interested in Him. Paul puts it like this, and we'll close here. This is Romans 9. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. May all of us, may all of you, see afresh the depth of God's mercy toward you. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that it doesn't depend on our will, on our intentions. As hard as that is, as humbling as that is to admit and to accept, we are so grateful that it depends on you, on your unchanging, compassionate character. Thank you, Father, for your mercy that you've poured out upon us in Jesus, even though we, like Israel, have rebelled against you, even though we remain largely indifferent toward you. Help us to be more grateful for your mercy, and as we're grateful for it, change us. Teach us to serve you and to fear you and to obey you so that we might do good in this world to one another and to this city and to this world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.